Would you open your Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Mark? We're still in chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 2 through 8, page 836 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to draw near to you this morning on this Lord's Day, to hear your word read, to sing your praises with your people. You are so good to us that you would call us to worship your name, that you would call us to delight in your glory. Oh, Father, we thank you this morning for the message of the gospel that you are A God who has come, who has revealed himself, who has shown his mighty power to save. And we have seen it in Jesus Christ. And we have tasted of your mighty power to save. And we know it personally. And Father, we pray that you would do a work of grace afresh in our hearts this morning. Psalm 51 leads us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And O Father, may your word lead us to say these things today. May we take up the call of repentance with joy and with seriousness and with earnestness. And may we bring our hearts before you For this is what you call us to do. You call us to be a people of repentance. And Father, I pray that you would work it out this morning through your word. You give us contrite and lowly hearts. And that you would come and you would draw near to us. And that you would indeed heal us. Father, we pray all of these good things in the, the blessed name of your Son. Amen.
So this morning, before we start, I want to set the stage a bit of where we're coming from and where we're going. And so to set the stage, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 ends with these words. The Lord God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And if you know the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, Adam sins. And due to sin, Adam and his wife are driven out of the garden. The God who placed Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, the God who communed with Adam day by day, the God who spoke with Adam, even the God who called Adam a son, is now the God who drives Adam out from the garden. And we see as we leave Genesis chapter 3 and we work into Genesis chapter 4 and onward that life east of Eden is not a good way to live. It's not an easy place to live. And Adam is the first exile in a long history of exiles. Adam is ushered from the land of promise in the garden to the land of curse. He's taken from a land of plenty to a land that bears thorns and thistles. Adam is turned away from life and he's given over to a sentence of death. He leaves a place of purity and holy worship to a place of murder and treachery and violence. And I bring up Genesis chapter 3 and the story about Adam because Adam, his sin, and his exile from the garden do not stand off in the far distance as an ancient story. But the story of Adam stands and makes sense of our own stories, our own humanity. In Adam's life, we learn of our own sin. We learn of our own alienation from God. And we ourselves can testify to the harsh realities of life east of Eden. We can testify to alienation from God. We can testify to a world that lacks peace and wholeness. And we know intimately the heavy burden of the curse that we carry due to sin. Death is everywhere. And we see broken people everywhere. And when we consider the story of Adam, the story in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 going into 4, questions should begin to rise up in our hearts. How can we be free from thorns and thistles? Will there ever be a day when when justice shall reign upon the earth, where brother doesn't murder brother? Will the curse ever be lifted from this earth and all who live on it? Will we ever get to taste of that tree of life? And most importantly, will we ever get to commune with that holy God of the garden again? Will we know that joy, that wholeness that comes from his presence? And in this context of sin and rebellion, we hear the word of the gospel Isaiah chapter 40 sounds a blessed note after Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and the rest. Isaiah preaches to us. He says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. 
here in the midst of exile, Isaiah is preaching. And he plants before us a plain statement of the gospel. What is the gospel? We heard it last week. Well, the gospel is the coming of God. And even more, the gospel is the revelation, the demonstration of this God's saving power and might. And this message that Isaiah declares is what meets exile's very needs. The God who created the world and all that is in the world, the God who reigns sovereignly upon his throne, the God who has made gracious promises to save to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, this God has come. He has appeared. He has shown himself. And this gospel declares such a different message than we're used to hearing. The world's religions call us to reach up and to grasp after God. They call us to work our way closer to the, to the divine. But the gospel declares the God who inhabits eternity has reached down and firmly grasped a people. The gospel declares that we do not make our way back to the garden in our own strength, but the God of the garden makes his way to us. And even more than this, the gospel declares this God's definitive and historical actions. The gospel is not a new moral that we preach. The gospel is not a theory that we preach and believe. It's not something just on a page. It's not something that just sits in our brains. The gospel at its heart is revelation. It's the announcement of the deeds of our God. In history, our God has come to save a people. In history, he has come to deal with sin. In history, he has come to judge his enemies and put away the oppressors of his people. And he has come to give life and wholeness to those who wait for him. In Isaiah chapter 40, this is the message that Isaiah takes up and preaches to a bunch of exiles. He preaches this message of the coming of God to a bunch of people who are living far away from God, who don't experience the sweet fellowship that they used to have. He's preaching to a people who know in the fullest sense the weight of the curse, a people who know the the disaster that sin sin brings. And this is the, the message, this is the gospel that Mark takes up and preaches and explores in his gospel story. But Mark can preach differently than Isaiah and the rest of the prophets. Mark can preach with exactness and precision. While Isaiah anticipated the coming of God, he saw the coming of God only in shadows. He saw the coming of God only in broad contours. He saw the outline of the gospel. But Mark preaches differently. Mark has witnessed the coming of God. He sees the coming of God in fullness and he explains with clarity the way of the Lord. And as a bunch of exiles ourselves, we're children of Adam living east of the garden. This is the message that we need to hear. So if this is the gospel, and this is what Mark's story is all about, the unfolding of the gospel, I want to focus our attention this morning on a particular question. As a people who live east of Eden, we're children of Adam, we're exiles as well. As a people who live in a world full of curse and experience curse ourselves, we need to ask, how do we receive this coming 
of God. How do we take to heart the announcement of the good news of the gospel? Our aim this morning is to set about answering this particular question. And Mark helps us here. He brings us into contact with a strange prophet in the wilderness. And this prophet's name is John. And Mark takes us and he sets us down at the feet of John that we might listen to his preaching and learn what must be done in our hearts if we are to receive with gladness this message of the gospel, this message of the coming of God. So Mark introduces us to John right away. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. Mark says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so last week we saw that this quotation that Mark brings before us is a, a composite quotation. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, he's quoting from the book of Malachi, and he's alluding to several other places. And we saw last week that this quotation teaches us about who Jesus is, about the gospel and what's at stake in the gospel. And this quotation also gives us guidance this morning in how we are to respond to the coming of Jesus and what must be done in our hearts if we are to receive this message of Jesus. So when we look at this composite quotation in verses 2 through 3, we, we notice something. A key phrase is repeated twice. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare. John, this strange and eccentric man who wears camel's hair and eats locusts and honey, is not a sideshow or a diversion. Rather, this man has come with an important mission, an important job to perform, He has come to prepare a people for God. And this concept should not be too unfamiliar to us. And we can just illustrate it simply. When an important figure comes to town, whether that figure be the President of the United States or the Queen of England or the the Prime Minister, that figure is going to send dignitaries ahead of him or her to get things ready. And those dignitaries are going to do the job of preparation. They're going to come before and make all the arrangements. They're going to book the speaking engagements. They're going to set up where this figure is going to sleep and where he's going to eat and where he's going to hang out. They're even going to determine who the figure will will see and talk to. Because not everyone can see the Queen of England or the, the President. And not only do these dignitaries make arrangements, but even more importantly, they make the people ready for the coming one. They give notice to the city. They make press releases. They give interviews. They explain why this person is coming to town and what they seek to accomplish in this place. And these dignitaries make all the necessary arrangements so that the people of the city are ready to receive the coming one. And when we come to John's ministry, we see that John's task is all the more momentous. For John does not just prepare the way for a politician, but John prepares the way for the coming of God Almighty. 
John's ministry ushers in the climax of history, what the whole Old Testament looks for. And John's work is all the more difficult. For John just doesn't give press releases or give interviews or make hotel arrangements. But he has the difficult work of getting the people's hearts in shape to receive this God. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, describe what John must do. Malachi says, Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their father, lest I come and strike the land with, an utter, with a decree of utter desolation. And this is the responsibility that John bears in his ministry. He bears the ministry of calling the people back to God. And this is what Mark reveals John doing. If we look at verse 4, John's ministry is summed up as this. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We have to take a step back this morning and ask, why is John's ministry of preparation necessary? Why does he have to come to Israel and call them to turn, call them to repent, call them to prepare? The answer is what ultimately stands between the Lord and his people are their hard hearts. The story of Israel, if you trace it from the beginning to the end, is a story of hardness of heart and callousness towards God. At all major points in the story of Israel, we see their stubbornness. We see it in the Exodus story. After God saves them, from Egypt and delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh. What do these people do in the wilderness? Moses is up on the mountain. Where is our God? Where is Moses? Let us worship these other gods. Instead of following the law of the Lord when the Lord brings them and preserves their life through the wilderness and sets them in the land of promise, instead of following the law of the Lord, they... They forsake the law of the Lord and and take other gods into their hearts and into their homes. And we could go on detailing event after event, and we could look at different kings as they forsake the Lord. But Psalm 78 gives us a precise diagnosis of Israel's spiritual condition. Psalm 78 says, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They turned away and acted with treachery. They twisted like a deceitful bow. Who is Israel? There are people who refuse. There are people who forget. There are people whose hearts are not steadfast. And even worse, they're like a treacherous bow. They will not shoot straight. They always miss the mark. And the same heart posture that plagued Israel in the wilderness and in the land is still present when John shows up to minister to these people. The hearts of Israel are rocky and jagged, uneven and rough. Their hearts are like a road that is impassable. They are unready for God. These people are unprepared. And so what must John do with these people? Well, he must go ahead and he must clear the way. He's called to do the work of a bulldozer. He must plow over the rocky and jagged hearts of Israel and he must make what is rough and uneven, smooth and passable. 
Isaiah chapter 40 speaks of John's ministry. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become a level, and rough places a plain. We see in John's ministry that God's way back to his people is paved with repentance. And this is what John's ministry of preparation aims at, and this is the very reason he preaches, that the people that he ministers to would forsake every idol that's in their heart and in their homes, that these people would cast aside every low thought of God that they have, every vain imagination of God, and that they would take up the law of God and that they would follow it and that they would return to God with their whole hearts. This is what John aims at, and this is what John desires in the people of Israel. So Mark's quotation from Isaiah and Malachi give us a, a broad understanding of what John is doing in his ministry. Now we need to zoom in a bit and notice a few particulars about John's ministry as it readies us for the Lord Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus brings first thing we need to notice about John's ministry is that John's ministry is a temporary ministry. It's a transitory ministry. Just as quickly as John appears in the story of Mark, he, he disappears. And this happens for good reason. Mark is teaching us John doesn't exist for John. His ministry, his convicting and powerful preaching These great crowds that he gathers around himself do not exist for him or his movements. Rather, John exists to point to a greater reality. The Gospel of John tells us these words that John preaches. He must increase and I must decrease. And Mark sets John's preaching and ministry before us with a purpose. He works to create within us as we read this gospel, as we read John's preaching, to create a craving within our hearts. John, rightly heard, should create anticipation within our hearts for the coming of Jesus. John's words are like an appetizer before the main course. They, they wet our palate. They prepare us for the main course. And this is how John preaches. Verse 7, Mark tells us the the message of John. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is saying something bigger is coming, something greater is coming, a greater reality is soon to be here. Prepare yourself. Second, we have to take notice of the geography in these verses. Mark mentions many significant places. He mentions the wilderness. He mentions the country of Judea. He mentions Jerusalem. And what is so interesting here is that John doesn't go into the populated places to preach his important message about repentance and the coming of God. Rather, he operates on the fringes of society. We see him operating in the wilderness. And he isn't worried about making his message accessible to the masses. A very backwards ministry strategy. What is even more interesting, and we only notice this if we have our Old Testament ears on this morning, is what's happening in the wilderness. 
John proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what happens? Well, we see people streaming from Jerusalem and all of Judea doing what? Confessing their sins. Why is this interesting and important? Because Jerusalem is where the temple is and the sacrifices take place in the temple and the temple is where the people go to confess their sins and the temple is where the people go to find the forgiveness of sins. But now in the ministry of John, we see everything backwards. The people are leaving Jerusalem, flooding out of the great city where the temple is, going out to the wilderness, confessing their sins and being baptized for forgiveness. Mark very subtly shows us that there's something new going on here. The old structures are inadequate in God's plans. And as Mark's gospel progresses, we will see with greater and greater clarity the new way of God. The forgiveness of sins is not going to be found in a temple or an animal sacrifice. It's going to be found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see Jesus telling people within the story of the Gospel of Mark, your sins are forgiven. And even more, we will see in this Jesus, one who dies to give his life as a ransom for many. Third, in John's ministry, we must notice mixed results. Our text this morning in verses 2 through 8 evidences signs of optimism. It seems like a a great revival is sweeping across Israel. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized in the Jordan. We see here that John is well received by the crowds. However, it just takes us to read on a little bit to see this is not the end of the story. These signs of optimism are shrouded by unbelief and violence. Chapter 1, verse 14. John was arrested. And then we learn in chapter 6 what happens to John after he's arrested. He meets a man, Herod, and he says the wrong thing to a wrong person about what Herod has done marrying. And eventually John is beheaded because of his summons to repentance. And by the time we get to chapter 11, we learn that the religious leaders of Israel even though all their people were going out into the wilderness and hearing John's preaching, they had hard heart towards John. They refused his preaching. They refused his baptism of repentance. And John comes and he works to prepare the people for God. But we see that his ministry is rejected by the religious and the powerful. Instead of repenting in sackcloth and ashes, we see that John's head is served up on a platter at a drunken party. This is what happens to God's messenger within Israel. And John and his ministry prepare us for Jesus and the cross. In Jesus, we're going to see the crowds flock around him and gladly hear him preach and want to experience the power of his ministry. But we will see that the Son of Man will be rejected and ultimately handed over to death. Just as in the ministry of John, so in the ministry of Jesus The coming of God is riddled with rejection. And we will see that the way of God is a Roman cross. John's ministry prepares us for the meaning of the gospel. The coming of God and the full display of this God-saving power 
does not mean the squashing of armies or political force. Rather, the way of God, the power of God, the demonstration of his saving might will be evidenced in the cross of Christ, in the rejection of the Messiah, in the death of the Son of God. And here, salvation will flow freely to the people of God. So we have John's ministry before us. We have the message of John before us. We even have the actions of John before us. And we now need to return to our original question this morning. We're children of Adam. <clears throat> we live east of Eden. We live in a world full of curse. How do we receive the coming of God? How is it that we can stand prepared before this God? How do we readily receive this preaching of the gospel? And Mark sets John and his ministry before us for a particular reason. He brings John's burning preaching to our ears. He tells us of John's strange apparel and dietary habits for one reason. Mark desires that we would find ourselves in the great crowds that thronged around John. He desires that we would be among the people who left the many distractions of the cities and went out to the lonely and desolate wilderness. He desires that this message of repentance would sting and burn in our hearts so that we would find ourselves with the crowds freely confessing our sins. And he desires that ultimately we would find ourselves with the crowds being immersed in the muddy waters of the Jordan, finding a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For when we examine our own hearts, we realize that we stand no differently than Israel during John's time. The same hardness of heart that plagued Israel plagues every human being. Isaiah's Israel saw God's power and love in the Exodus. They heard his commandments, his good words, but they refused to listen. And we, in the same manner, instead of worshiping and loving the God who created us and sustains us, and giving us every good thing moment to moment, we just like Israel have turned away. We have, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, suppressed the truth about God and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Our hearts are by nature hard and callous. They're rocky and out of shape. They're a road that cannot be traveled over. Our hearts are vast wilderness that cannot be traveled across because there is no road. And just as Israel needed John's ministry of bulldozing, so do we. All that makes our hearts impassable to the way of God must be worked over and made straight. The valleys must be filled in and the jagged mountaintops must be plowed over. We need the bulldozer of repentance to scrape across our hearts and to make them smooth and clean. Because of the gospel, because of God in Christ has come and has revealed his saving power and might in Jesus' death and resurrection, the call of repentance comes to us in power. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul comes and he preaches. God commands all people everywhere to repent. 
We see that the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, impels us to repent. And this repentance that we are demanded of is a whole turning from sin back to God. Repentance encompasses our whole being, our minds, our souls, our hearts, our bodies. And repentance is simply taking up the scriptures and seeing what God loves and what God hates. Our God hates envy, so in repentance we we cast it aside. Our God hates pride, so in repentance we bulldoze it over. Our God hates idolatry, so we, we topple it and get rid of it. And repentance means that we take up what our God loves. What our God loves chiefly is His Son. And the call of repentance bids us to cherish and embrace the beloved Son more than anything else. And this call of repentance is irrevocable for the Christian. We never get to graduate from this demand of repentance. We're never done bulldozing our hearts. John Calhoun, a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, wrote to his congregation saying, Repentance is the constant exercise of the true Christian as long as he is in this world. The true Christian will not leave off repenting till he perfectly leaves off sinning. What Calhoun is saying is repentance is our life. Bulldozing is our work. It's our vocation. And we have to be clear about repentance this morning. Because repentance is a a costly work. It is the way of the, the cross. Jesus instructs us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Repentance is a, a painful work. It's full of grief. We can remember well Peter's sermon after Pente- Pentecost and the effect that it brought on his audience. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts. The rebuke of God in repentance does not sit peacefully in our chests, but it causes burning and pain. And repentance is a hard and difficult work. Mountains are not leveled out in a day. Valleys are not filled in in just a moment. Taking out sin takes blood and sweat and tears. It's a lifetime of bulldozing. But there's more to repentance. Because repentance is also a matter of joy and pleasure and peace. Our understanding of repentance must always have an eye on the goodness of God revealed in the gospel. One of the most precious promises about repentance comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verses 14 through 19. In verse 14, Isaiah comes like John to Israel, like we heard this morning, and he calls them. He says, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Isaiah is calling the people to repentance. There is needed this smooth road over their rocky and jagged hearts. But in verse 15, Isaiah brings us to see the pleasure and joy that repentance brings. Isaiah moves from this call of repentance to this gracious promise. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the heart of the contrite. What does this mean? What is Isaiah telling us? Isaiah tells us that the God who is high and lifted up, this God who inhabits eternity, who is glorious and full of splendor, is picky where he dwells. He does not come to earth to dwell in palaces or grand mansions because they don't do justice to his glory or his worth. He's not interested in the pride of heart or the boasts of men. Rather, this holy God delights to dwell in a certain kind of place. He delights to dwell with a person who is crushed, who is lowly in spirit. He delights to dwell with a person who repents and forsakes their sins. Isaiah comforts us, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the heart of the contrite. Why can we say repentance is a matter of pleasure and joy and peace? Because repentance is ultimately about God. Because God delights to dwell with the contrite, with the, with the lowly. And even more, this God graciously promises to come to the lowly, to come to the crushed, to come to the contrite, and to heal them. Our God does not delight in running us over constantly, but he comes in mercy to bind up our wounds with love. Isaiah leads us on in chapter 57 to see the Lord's gracious designs in repentance. The Lord says, I have seen his ways but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And we hear the Lord Jesus Christ preaching in the same strain in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. May these words of Jesus guide us this morning. Who is the prepared person? Well, the prepared person, the bulldozed person, the truly repentant person is the one who comes to Jesus as a sinner. The one who comes to Jesus in need the one who comes to Jesus and recognizes their barrenness of heart. And those who come to Jesus, who confess their sickness and their need, will find the free and full salvation of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes up the words, and we can imagine him preaching Isaiah 57, peace, peace to the near and to the far. I will heal you. That's what Jesus says to the repentant. And this is what Jesus says to us this morning. He guarantees a great salvation for us. Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So let's find ourselves going out to the Jordan and confessing our sins and taking on this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we just worship you this morning. 
You are so good, and your mercy is so great. As we consider our own hearts as they're rocky and jagged, you have not utterly cast us aside, but you have given us this gracious summons to repentance. You've given us a gracious Savior who promises to come to our hearts and heal us. And we cast our eyes upon the gospel this morning. We cast our eyes upon the goodness of Christ Jesus. We look for his healing power. We look for his saving power this morning. Oh, would you bring it near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.